Hey, what's going on, man? Hey, hey, brother. Right on. I'm glad. Uh, I'm glad that link worked. I wasn't sure if it would work through Messenger or not. Uh, how you doing? Good, brother. Sorry, to, uh, I I'm very uh, non uh, technologically savvy. You're good, man. You're the fucking archiver. You don't got to be technologically set. I'm the one who's got to figure that out. <laughs> I'm I'm supposed to be the one figuring that shit out. <laughs> yeah, dude. What's good, everybody? Welcome to Wise Guys Hideaway. I'm your host, as always, Ian Barr. Today, I'm going solo because I have a very special guest, and I'm pretty much going to give him the floor more times than not and just chime in and say stupid shit like I always do. But uh, today, I got the street legend himself as far as uh, crime archivers, uh, uh, crime journalism. I mean, per- I mean, pretty much just a man. What- I mean, really, uh, Scott M. Bernstein here, my guest. It's one of the reasons I even got into this shit. I've been watching you since I was like 10, bro. <laughs> oh, man, you humble me. You make me, uh, you make <laughs> no, me think... feel old, but you make me feel uh, very honored at the same time. Well, I mean, the first thing I ever seen you on was back when they were doing uh, that, that whole Gangland series, and they mm-hmm. got to the Detroit Best Friends. I think that was the first. Yeah, like... that, was my fir- that was my first time on national television. It was in 2008 or nine. Okay. All right. So that is the first thing you did. I didn't know if you had did anything up till then. Um. Let's give the people a little bit of, like, background about yourself. What got you into organized crime writing and stuff? Because, like, I mean, as I just said, fellas like you were what got me in, into all this stuff. But what, like, what sort of, like, inspired you to go? Because Motor City Mafia, man, that's a great sort of dossier, or I don't know what you criminal profile, if you will, of just Detroit yeah, organized just a, crime. It's, a, for... it's, it's a good photographic kind of archival index of Detroit organized crime figures from the 19-teens up and through the 2000s. Um, Does it get you know, hard to look a little further back than that? I always wondered that because you fellas, like you and Prophet and a few of the other fellas I know, uh, Seth Ferranti, all those guys, you guys are able to go so far back. How do you find some of the, like the deeper, deeper shit that you guys find? Because we find it because of you guys. Like where yeah. on earth do you guys find it? <laughs> uh, you know, through uh, university archives, uh, media archives. Um, I have a really good relationship in terms of my Detroit stuff. I have a really good relationship with Wayne State, and they have a. Library there called the Walter Ruther Library that um, keeps an archive of all of Detroit media, both uh, uh, print-wise as well as radio and television. Oh, that's sweet. I, I should I should check something like that out. That's really cool. So they got one of those things where you can like flick through like the old yeah. uh, like newspaper clippings. Yeah, and then old uh, photos from uh, the Detroit Free Press, Detroit News, Channel Four, Channel Seven, Channel Two, which were the you know, NBC, ABC, CBS. Yeah. Channel Seven's had you on quite a few times, haven't they? Yeah, I've been. No, I'm. I've I've done all three major um, networks in Detroit. I would yeah. say that Channel Four has been the one that I've most been featured on, which is NBC. Oh, okay. okay. And I would say Fox Two was would be beneath that. And then I've been on Channel Seven a, a handful of times, but probably more so uh, Channel uh, Fox Two and. Um, and Channel 4, which is... Uh, I, just, I just get all geeked up anytime I see you come on. If I'm watching the news with my pops or whatever, I'm like, oh, I fucking know him. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> Yeah, but you know how I got into it? I mean, it had always been in my family history. So I grew up hearing a lot about um, the Purple Gang because my great, uh, great-grandfather's first cousins were the four Bernstein brothers who were the yeah. biggest, baddest, most ruthless Jewish gangsters in yeah. the history of Detroit. Yeah, ran I'd the say, city I'd during agree. prohibition. I'd agree. They were very violent from everything. I mean, just from the things I've read from you, things I've read from other people. The Purple Gang was Noah. I actually have who did this one. I gotta go to the. I gotta go to the archives real quick. The Detroit Purple Gang. The Paul Ar, Paul Arcaris. Kaviev. Kaviev. Thank you. Yeah, I got I got that one too. That that one was a good read. It he's written. Like, he's written two. He wrote one, which is more of a traditional book, 
Well, he's actually written three. Okay. Uh, the he wrote uh, the Purple Gang. He wrote uh, the Violent Years, which were like kind of the post Purple Gang years, which which started to deal more with Italians. But he still had a lot of Purple Gang information there. And then he did a, a, a more of like a photo archival book, I think, called the Infamous Purples. Yeah, that's the. I think that's the one I got to where it's like it's sort of almost like he. I don't know who wrote theirs first, you or him. Yeah, it's my. It's through a matching set. It's like they made your guys' covers match. Right. And I think they came together when I got them. Right. It's from a, a series under uh, the Arcadia uh, Books imprint. Uh, Arcadia is a publishing okay. company out of South Carolina, kind of a mid, okay. mid-level publishing company. There's a lot of historical um, uh, books and and pictorial histories and. Um, I my book was actually the second in their series. The first one to ever uh, be released was one about the Chicago outfit, written by uh, Jack Binder, who's one of the foremost authorities, if not the foremost uh, historian on Chicago mob activity. And uh, I actually called him up when I was in law school, and uh, him and George Anastasia were the first two people I called, and was kind of like, I want to do what you, what you do. Oh, um, big shout to George Anastasia. That's the boy too. That's yeah, George has like been. Uh, <laughs> A real driving force behind the scenes in my career, and I owe so much to him and uh, my agent, Frank Wyman, who George uh, set me up with when I was, you know, 28, 29 years old and hadn't really been published on a, on a major level. I'd only had that one mid-level publishing gig, and then, uh, you know, getting an agent like Frank from George, uh, you know, validated me and got me my first handful of uh, major publishing deals, and ha- I was off and running, so... Uh, but yeah, I mean, you ended up doing fucking. You ended up doing some renowned shit too. Like, uh, you were you worked on the the Mafia Prince, right? Like, Phil. Yeah, Leonetti. Mafia Prince was my book. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so you said you sat down with Phil. Yeah, I spent um about a year uh, meeting with him. Um, intermittently, every couple months, we'd meet up for a weekend in a hotel in, di- in a different right. part of the country. Yeah, the FBI yeah. Would, the the FBI uh, would bring him to me. Okay, would they sit in? Did they have to sit in for all that? or? Uh, they didn't sit in, but they were protecting him. I mean, he was yeah, in witness yeah. protection, and yeah. we had to make sure that, uh, you know, every uh, city that we were going into was, uh, you know, that they were, that where we were, where we were going to be meeting and how we were going to be getting there was vetted via the government to make sure that people weren't following us. And yeah, no, I'm sure. I'm uh, sure. They still, are they still headhunting for Phil? Is that still, a... I mean, in, in theory, but I don't really think in practice. I mean, if, I don't, if yeah. Leonetti was someone that, you know, was <laughs> making, uh, if he was back on the streets of Philly trying to act like nothing had happened before and was living out openly in South Philly, I would say that he'd be, you know, in danger but just uh living his life in the witness protection program right now in another part of the country as a you know completely different person i don't believe that uh Kenny joey merlino or anybody in philly you know is, is sending hit teams after uh, to go find phil i just wonder if it's just like not even in the finances nowadays i'm never gonna say that organized crime's not bringing in buku bucks but and i'm just a speculator i'm no fucking like actual historian so like it just seems like i don't i don't know if they're ever going to peak the way they peaked. Again. I'm not sure. though. No, they won't, but I don't think it's really a money issue. I mean, I don't think the reason that they're not going after Phil, uh, or I said, I, I wouldn't attribute the reason that they're not headhunting for Phil. Uh, I wouldn't tie that to lack of finances. They definitely would have the finances to do it if they wanted to. I just uh, mean just, cost versus reward, like risk versus right, reward. Right. No, that's that, like. it's definitely falls under, you know, that umbrella, the risk versus reward umbrella more so than the, you know, we don't have the, the, the resources or the financial uh, oh, yeah. ability yeah, not to, to send it that way at all. Right. <laughs> yeah. Cause they have the money. They yeah. do. But, Especially, <laughs> you know, the Philly guys have their hands in a lot of different uh, pies uh, in the underworld. And even though a lot of those guys don't have recordable income, um, believe me, those guys live pretty well uh, as <laughs> quote unquote gamblers or, or, uh, you know, plumbing salesmen or whatever. They yeah. Plumbing list, salesmen. List their uh, career as, but, uh, you know, I, so I grew up hearing stories my whole life. Uh, it never really resonated with me outside of, you know, being at a dinner table with family members and and having them recount something related to the purples. Um, but but it, it's all normal when you grow up around it. I've talked to other people who court, sort of came up having family members in that lifestyle. It's like having a, a, a cop in your family. Yeah, and lawyer, my, family, you know what I mean? They, they don't, it just seems that way. I don't have anyone yeah, like that. And I, know I had a grandfather that um, I was very close to and. Um, while my grandpa was not a wise guy in any way, shape, or form, um, he was someone that liked to socialize and befriend <laughs> wise guys. 
So uh, I was I feel them. I feel that I was surrounded by a colorful cast of characters uh, in my childhood that who were my grandpa's buddies, who were all these Jewish bookmakers and gamblers that all worked for the Jackalones. And I, I mean, that didn't mean anything to me as a kid. I just knew, you know, uh, Al and Freddie and Rick and Leslie and Terry and Bernie. Those were my grandpa's buddies. Like, I, I didn't really realize who they were until I started researching this stuff for a living and their names start <laughs> popping up in FBI files that I'm um, you're like oh man that's my uncle. yeah that's my so uncle. <laughs> uh, it really didn't reach a point with me where I ever considered it as a career or even writing as a career or researching this as a career um it was what was your initial like uh what were you trying you were trying to be a lawyer yeah so so the story really goes so the, it, it had been in my you know, uh, part of my my family lineage and um, the stories always came up when we got together or, you know, just for various reasons. I also had another uncle uh, via the Purple Gang connection. There was also these kind of offshoot connections of uh, my one uncle ended up marrying uh, the daughter of a very prominent Purple Gang member named Sammy Garfield. And uh, Sammy Garfield ended up running uh, all the... um, mid-Michigan rackets uh, up at, by uh, Mount Pleasant and yeah. running the oil business for the Purple Gang. And uh, my my grandpa's brother, Al, his wife, Charlotte, was a Garfield. So there was always that part. And then Garfield, Sammy Garfield, was always the, the go-between between the Purples and Meyer Lansky. So Meyer Lansky was spending a lot of time in my family orbit. So those stories got told a lot. Um, and then I had well, another, as I mean, rightfully so Meyer Lansky's, yeah. I mean, and then I had you know. another uncle, um, who was married to the niece of a very prominent, uh, Jewish racketeer who ended up getting killed gangland style in 1971 named Sally Shindel. So I, you know, those stories had always been told. And then my grandpa, like I said, uh, was, was was around those guys and he was a, a big golfer and uh was a golf champion at, at hillcrest country club which was the country club owned by the detroit mafia jack toko um okay. owned uh, hillcrest out in macomb township and they would use my grandpa in some ways as like a, uh they would stake him on the on the golf course when they would bat okay they'd bat him because he was so good okay. um so he would you know occasionally well, more than occasionally get to golf with Tony Jackaloni and Billy Jackaloni. And so I would, you know, again, I heard, I've heard those stories coming up, but it never really meant much to me other than the five, 10 minutes of, of the storytelling at the Thanksgiving dinner table. Then yeah, um, something to hear from a relative right. or something, you know, I don't know. I've always liked Goodfellas cool. and Godfather and Casino and, you know, it always interested me. And I remember kind of maybe my earliest seeds of, uh, being planted in terms of my interest in this stuff probably came after I saw the movie Goodfellas. Yes, I went with my dad. You. I was 12 years old. My dad probably not should not have been taking me to see that kind of movie when I was <laughs> 12. But my, uh, my dad did the same thing. If you get good grades uh, in school, I could see Scarface at 10. Yeah, that was uh, so my, that was one of those things where they were like, "Get good grades, I'll let you watch Scarface." Mom, and apparently, I could do it for that. My mom was out of town, and uh, me and my dad went and saw Goodfellas, and it opened my eyes to that world. And I remember. Maybe being fifteen or sixteen, a couple years after that, seeing the seeing the movie on television, and then wanting to go buy the book, I uh, went and bought Wise Guy, read it, and then I went and saw Casino. Yep. I remember buying the book Casino and and going to see Donnie Brasco. I bought the book Donnie Brasco, yep. but that was more yep. kind of like I was just a voracious reader, and I was interested yeah. in reading about stuff I'd seen on, on in television or in film. But what really was the tipping point for me? I was in law school in Chicago in the early two thousands. And uh, I got an internship uh, my first year in law school working for the Illinois Attorney General's office in um, organized crime unit within the criminal prosecution division. Nice. And so nice. Uh, 2000, 2001, 2002, 2003, um, I was going to school and at the same time working in the AG's office and actually getting like hands-on experience working organized crime cases connected to the Chicago Mafia, getting to go out with cook county sheriff department detectives and um investigate actual mob murders and extortion attempts and i can remember That's- going around with these two uh these two like straight out of like an nypd blue episode um 
DJ Beckenbinder. Good to meet you. I remember the guy's name. He was he was Greek. The the main guy was Dean Giancakis. And he, oh, this God. guy looked like Andy Sipowitz from NYPD Blue and had, a, you know, every word out of his mouth was either a swear word or a racial epithet. Just was that old school Chicago, yeah. you know, detective, uh, you know. When they troll you in the trunk of the car. Right. So I remember going around with him after um, after uh, there was the, the looking around for, for suspects in the Ronnie Jarrett murder, which happened in late 99 but they were running down leads when I got with them in late 2000. So it had been a year, but they were uh, running down some leads on the anniversary of Ronnie Jarrett's murder. And then I remember being with them on, on some, um, they would call them doorstops, uh, where they, but they just randomly knock on doors um, in the follow-up to the uh, Tony the Hatchet Chiaramonte hit, uh, where he was killed in Lyons Township in the, in the vestibule of a fried chicken uh, fast food restaurant. And I was with uh, the, the detectives um, who were on a task force with uh, FBI and uh, Chicago PD and uh, going and, and, and just sitting in the car while these guys went and asked the, you know, the neighborhoods, the neighbors around the chicken place that they, they saw the car that, that, uh, that helped the, uh, the shooters. So that yeah. really got me really interested. It felt like the movies that I had grown up watching, The Goodfellas and, yeah. Scar- oh, and the God. Scarface the Casino, was were like coming to life. Um, yeah. Yep. And I really fell in love with researching it and learning about organized crime and writing about organized crime. And I was taking a, a couple federal criminal law classes in law school, where I was, um, you know, that I was that I was that annoying guy in the class that was like, sitting in the front row and raising his hand <laughs> raising his hand for every question yeah. and it was like I, it, I was the opposite for every other class so like the professors yeah. took notice where they're like yeah you sit yeah. the back on every other class and you're like half asleep and you're playing on your computer not paying attention but this <laughs> class here you have the answer to every question and, and he's like and you're the front you're row and you're this know. eager beaver yeah. So, um, that's cool. You took a notice of that though, man. A lot of times there's a lot of motherfuckers who do stuff like that and it really goes and it's sad. It goes unnoticed. Yeah. Like, I'm glad somebody picked up on that. Like, a, I think we found what, well, this, I was, what this kid did. So, to I do. was lucky in a, in a number of ways. First, I was lucky that I got this internship that was just, I'm sure, considerably, considerably more, um, hands on and, uh, and, and exhaustive and, and in, encompassing and grossing more so than normal 23, 24 year old law school kids get. I mean, I, I think yeah. a lot of those jobs end up being your, your, your paper pushing or in the basement doing research. And I was actually going out with the cops on, yeah, on, on assignments and stuff. Yeah. Um, and I getting to go through wiretap, um, raw wiretap intelligence and help sort it out and get to learn the hierarchy, like being the, I was actually in the room where they have, you know, if you've ever seen the Sopranos or, you know, where they're in the FBI room, they have the, 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 the pyramid chart with all the pictures blown up yeah. on the wall. You yeah. Know, so I'm like, ah, oh, seeing one of those would be yeah. so cool. I've always wanted to see a real life. Well, I mean, you always see the pictures, but it would be cool to stand in front of one of those boards. Going, like. I remember going with some of these guys kind of, uh, covertly to Rush Street, which is where, uh, Joe, the builder, Andriaki hung out, who's, who's still one of the leaders of the, the Chicago mob today. And uh, just kind of following him around from restaurant to restaurant, but like doing it, you know, in an unmarked car and, you know, yeah. going and trying to eavesdrop on his conversations and, 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 and get, a, get, a, get information from people that he was meeting with where, they, you know, there'd be a meeting that he would have um, at a restaurant. And then that guy that he was meeting with would leave. And then the guys that I was, uh, the guys that I were, uh, the, the two cops that I would be with would then follow whoever had come from the meeting with Andriaki. And they'd end up pulling him over, like, you know, five miles away and then taking him into, like, a McDonald's and being like, you know who you just met with? And, you know, we're watching you and that <laughs> kind of stuff. So I was so that, so in that regard, I was super lucky that I got the job. And then within that job, I was assigned to a, a unit that was so uh, a, a exciting and and uh, an elite and also that I, I had bosses that either the, the program I was in was very ahead of its time in terms of giving us hands-on access to, to the world of, of, uh, uh, of law enforcement and, and, and mob busting from a, from a, per, yeah. from a um, attorney general's perspective, uh, you know, state's attorney's perspective slash the task force that I was a, 
a part of um, where I was interacting with FBI and CPD. So those things. And then I also had a professor in law school that happened to me, happened to be my advisor. And so the advisor is a little bit more familiar with you as a student, other than just the classes yeah. that you take from him, because he's been assigned yeah. your, you know, your case file. So uh, his name was Ron Smith, and he was a, 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 a semi-famous defense attorney um, in the Chicago uh, legal world, uh, representing high, uh, kind of high-profile racketeering. A lot of it at, at the time that he was. Uh, teaching classes and, and being my advisor was white collar um, racketeering, okay. but he had previously okay. been yeah. involved in, in some uh, Chicago mob stuff. And he had helped me get the internship and was teaching a lot of the classes I was taking where I was um, in the, in these federal criminal law classes being so active yeah. in discussion. And I remember this time of uh, my life, I was, pretty vocal amongst my friends and people in law school that I didn't want to practice law. Um, yeah. I had decided like, exactly right, what I wanted yeah. to do, but I remember it was like midway through my second year, I'd be sitting in, we'd be sitting in class waiting for class to start and people would be freaking out about certain things in law school. And I'd be like, man, I don't, like, you guys can freak out as much <laughs> as you want because you guys are all going to be going into this as a career. I'm just you know, getting, <laughs> like my, just, me, getting my law just... degree, getting my JD, and, and I'm going to go off in the world and, and find uh, find my place. And it's not going to be um, sitting in the basement of a, a thousand person law firm uh, working a, a, a 180 hours a week, which is where a lot of these guys went. No, I can, res- I can, re- I so, can respect that. I, I get that, especially when you found yeah. your calling, like when it, it hit So uh, long story short, the, my professor, who was also my advisor, knew that I was a really strong writer because he was my advisor, knew that I had uh, this passion for this kind of newfound, um, I, I mean, it wouldn't be a hobby at the time, but this kind of newfound interest that I had developed in, in organized crime and, and working at the AG's office. And he took me aside one day and said, you know, Scott, I, I know that you've been someone I can, I can listen to the, to the chatter in the, uh, in the, in my, uh, in my uh, classroom before I start class. And I can hear you telling everyone you're not going to practice law. And I know how much you love the (laughs) stuff that I got you doing at the AG's office. Have you ever considered not practicing law, but writing about the law and writing about the stuff that, um, that you, that you've kind of fallen in love with. And I was, it was like him saying to me, like, why don't you think about becoming president of the United States? Like, you just, like, can you do that? Like, can I just decide I wanted, I'm like, I don't have, yeah. I didn't have any journalism training. I didn't, you know, go to school for journalism. Um, even though I was, you know, in all my writing classes in law school, I, I'd gotten straight A's. And No, I feel, I feel what you're saying, though. It's not really like when someone's like, hey, why don't you be yeah. a journalist? You're like, I. So he helped me get a book deal. And, uh, you know, I was kind of off and running from there. And, kind of built this career from scratch and taught myself how to be a journalist, how to be a reporter. Um, and I really, ju- I mean, I just, I think it's like any endeavor you're going out into and, and attacking with reckless abandon, you, you want to learn about the trade as much as possible. And I, you know, that was at the time where I went from just having read those three Goodfellows casino and Donnie Brasco and I remember right when I was when I was working, you know, this would have been like I said, 2000, 2001, two, just every week going to the library or going to the borders or Barnes and Noble and buying a different book about a different city and learning about the mafia yeah. and, and around the country. Yeah. And uh, then calling the people that were the writers of those books and telling them, hey, I, I want to kind of follow in your footsteps. And luckily, you know, guys like George Anastasia and, and Jack Binder and. Um, fellas like yourself or fellas yeah, like me. Just, yeah, uh, that's I, I feel, I feel you, man. It is. I, and I appreciate you guys. I was waiting for a lot of like, get fucked kids from, but like, actually everybody, most people that like do this are fairly want to help you out yeah. the best they can. So then know? I, like, uh, you know, I just kind of just one thing led to another. And I, uh, I realized that I was, again, I, there was another, some luck involved in this. Uh, I, I happened to be from a city that had this, you know, being, you know, I was in law school in Chicago. I'm from Detroit. Detroit has this long, rich, historically significant gangland history that I have family ties to. Oh, yeah. And fortunately for yeah. me, there really hadn't been much, if anything, written about it. 
Um, so yeah. as a 28 no, year old, I think if it would have been, uh, I was trying to sell a book about New York or Chicago at 28. I don't know if I would have been able to do it, but I think in addition to right. having people co-sign for me and being talented, the people at Arcadia in South Carolina are like, wait, this Chicago book we did with Binder did, you know, through the roof. And there's a plethora yeah. of, of Chicago material already out there. Like Detroit, there's nothing yeah. there. We're going to, we're going to come into yeah. an empty market and dominate it. And the book just sold off. Why was that? Do you, do you have any kind of speculation why that was? I always wondered why it took you in profit. And I'm glad, I'm glad it was you too. Cause for, I, if it ain't, if I click on a Detroit documentary and it don't say Scott Bernstein, RL profit or like that, I'm like, no, I ain't watching this. No, I'm just kidding. I'll still watch it, but I'm going to be disappointed. I think it's the same thing when we're sitting here. And I think it's one and the same of when we're talking about why don't the meat, why doesn't the media around here cover the mob? Why don't they cover organized crime? It's, it's not that it doesn't exist. I mean, I, I can prove it. Exists. Yeah, yeah. I see it with my own eyes. <laughs> Uh, I write about it. I'm the only one who writes about it. I've never been sued. Um, everything I say is is based in fact, and I'm uncompromised. Uh, unfortunately, I yeah. can't say you that. don't really you don't really take liberties. I'll give you that. You don't. T- you do. You're a real punctual, factual. Like I'm too inspired by a Thompson, yeah. so I get a little more Gonzo-ish with my shit and do a little more speculation. But your shit is. But solid, what I'm, I'm saying, I mean, it's like I'm not compromised in the sense that I don't have. There, there, there aren't ad. There isn't ad revenue, um, being staked on what I'm writing. I believe that the Detroit mafia right. family is so diversified, so vertically integrated, where I mean, they're they're such the gold standard of organized crime in America. You know, they're the Ivy League. They're the Cadillac of. I I think them in Montreal. Are well, Montreal's falling. Montreal's in, in a free fall. That you might. You might be able to have made that argument <laughs> post, or should I say pre-2009, but I would say in the last 10 years, that's the, what's going on in Montreal is the uh, blueprint for disaster. Really? What, what's happening? I haven't really... Oh, haven't there's, really a, there's a biblical mob like... war going on in Canada over the last 10 years where you have <laughs> literally biblical, like 300 biblical. bodies. In the, yeah. Oh, my God. Okay. Everything's well, Montreal's been, off the list now. since Vince Rizzuto... Oh, sorry, Vince. Uh, um, Vito Rizzuto Vito? went uh, to prison. Yeah, and then he got and then he got no, killed. No, he didn't get, he didn't get killed. His that's son and his father got killed. He died of cancer a year after he came out of... Oh, okay, 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 okay. Yep, it was his dad that got shot. He right. got shot with a sniper, right? right? Like or whatever. Sniper okay. Um, but okay, so yeah. right. you know, I I don't think it's a coincidence that major media outlets around here ignore them because I believe that a lot of those major media outlets, um, get they just know better. No, though. they they're getting they're, they're compromised. They're they're getting major ad dollars from mafia backed companies that people don't know are mafia back companies. <laughs> right. Um, right. I and see I, that. Okay. Personal, that makes more, that makes more you know, personal experience with some of the big um, media outlets in Detroit where I've had some things that have been in the pipeline and on the verge of getting printed and at the last second they get killed, no pun intended, and <laughs> I find out that like certain businesses around here had called and, and threatened to, you know, remove hundreds of thousands of dollars of of uh, advertising dollars if, if those stories ran so yeah is that how news how let's, i have no idea how the news media work is that how well i mean i know everything depends on ads but do like local news really pe- like depend that's all on they, like yeah, a lot of local ads? Butter, yeah D- yeah true okay and, that makes sense. Uh, so that sense. unfortunately it uh and then you add to the fact that detroit's family is so um insulated and layered and there's a lot of complexity to the Detroit family that that doesn't that don't exist in other families um you don't have a lot of guys like the Philly guys that um are just dudes that drive hundred thousand dollar cars and live in million dollar houses but have no, no income yeah. Detroit you know all no these guys job, yeah. have very successful businesses and um they do a lot of white collar stuff and it's just much easier to, to hide that kind of money when you're making legitimate, um, you're a legitimate millionaire and you're just commingling that with the, the illegal funds that make you, you know, a multimillionaire. Uh, you know, Jack yeah, Coco, yeah. longtime godfather of Detroit, you know, led the family from the mid 70s to when he died in 2014. You know, I, I 
I have FBI files and his FBI, um, uh, I have literally thousands of pages of, of FBI records tied to Jack Toko and a lot of that. A lot of those records oh. are, are uh, based in his finances. And the, the, the diversity in, in his uh, business portfolio was staggering. This guy was probably worth over $100 million when he died, you know, had investments in hundreds of businesses from coast to coast. Um, so those type of... Now, was it him who made his soldiers get his, business his degrees, uncle. or was that a different... That was Joe Zerilli. That was his yeah. uncle? So okay. The godfather before him who, who okay. ruled the... Okay, I knew one of them had done it, and I always thought that was a really, like, really, I like, I don't know, it's like a really innovative yeah, move. Yeah, that's, like, that's how they moved into the boardroom. Like, hey, if you want to actually run with that's us, how they you got to move into the you boardroom. Know. You know, they went from being street thugs sure. in the 20s and 30s to being, you know, boardroom <laughs> gangsters in the 50s, 60s, 70s forward. Um, you know, Jack Toko. Oh, yeah, yeah. I still feel like a lot of those guys went and got business degrees like all the Detroit guys did. Like, if you took, like, a... Kind of like a census or like a statistical well, analyst, I guess you call it. Where you take the second generation, the guys that became the leaders of the family um, in the in the late seventies into the two thousands, were Jack Toko had a business degree from Detroit. Tony Zerilli had a business degree from Detroit. When I say Detroit, I mean the University of Detroit. Uh, Tony Toko had a business yeah. degree from the University of Detroit. Vince Maley uh, had a business degree from Notre Dame, and Mike Polizzi, who became the uh, the chief financial officer for the Detroit mob uh, had a accounting, uh, a, a master's in accounting from Syracuse. Hell yeah. No, that's what I mean. Those like Detroit boys, like you just listed all those, but like, I can't think of five, right. you know, members that had degrees. I can think know? of one guy in the Boston family, Vinny Ferrara, who I know has a business degree from Boston okay. college, but other than that. Yep. No, and there are a handful of them out there. Yeah. Detroit just seemed to have so, the most so, for some so reason. Like the most the family is, is at such a level above the norm. They're more difficult to investigate and research. And it's not low-hanging fruit. It's stuff that you actually have to do a lot of legwork on and, and dig and develop sources. And let's be honest, most people in the media, frankly, are lazy. <laughs> yeah. So Especially you add the fact days. that you have compromised uh, outlets that are you know tempted or not even tempted pretty much bury in my opinion they bury organized crime news to to protect their bottom line but then you also have reporters that aren't doing their job because it's not you know bodies aren't being strewn uh in street you know in the gutters across the street so it's not you know there's only been probably three mafia murders in the last 20 years um one of them is is was a a hot dose so i'm not even positive it was a mob hit but i feel like it was a mob hit so there's really only two two was that was a hot dose like he, like like they he overdosed, overdosed him like they intentionally overdosed him oh okay that would have been in okay. 2007 right. with carlo Bomarito. but the two uh you know gangland style uh classic mafia style hits so we're, we're back in 2001 and 2002 uh john john jarajosa in 01 was killed on eight mile um, in a professional hit, and uh, Jerry the Blade being shetty was murdered in 02 uh, at a construction site in a professional hit. But so there really has there hasn't been um, mob murders, and there hasn't been a lot of uh, indictments. There's only been one indictment in the past uh, 25 years, and or two. There's been two in 25 years: the '96 bust and uh, the '06 bust. And who uh, and who received time on that? Did they? You in '95 was Operation Gam Tax, which ended up in convictions for a uh, majority of the Detroit Mafia uh, hierarchy. Uh, okay. You had convictions for Jack Toko, Tony Tony Zerilli, uh, okay. Billy Jackaloni, um, okay. and then yep. in '06 yep. okay. right. was Jackie Jackaloni got indicted with Pete Toko uh, and Davey Boy Aceto. Um, Aceto and Toko both pled. Jackie went to trial and beat it, beat, beat the racketeering case at trial. Now, would you argue that, to, like, because, like, you, I'm not even gonna, you got like 100%, I'm sitting here on a 25% knowledge ratio. So, but who would you, because I, I always love to do this. This is where, like, I fucking, it's like sort of a gonzo podcast, because I always like to ask hypotheticals. Who would you say was the most powerful mafia boss that Detroit's seen? Let's say prohibition era moving forward. We don't gotta go 
crazy back when like but just from like that 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 prohibition era where organized crime becomes real organized you know, crime. Joe's, you know, I mean there's, no, there's uh, really no question you know, whole board it's Joe Zerilli. You know, he was the Yep. He was the godfather um in Detroit from nineteen thirty six okay. to when he died in nineteen seventy seven. So forty forty one years That's uh, a I believe he was the second longest serving godfather in American mob history. I think he was actually when you take into account the fact that he was pretty much active until the day he uh, died, I think yeah. it actually might trump yeah. um, Magadino in Buffalo, I think was the longest serving. But I, I think, I, I believe Magadino's, Magadino's last 10, 15 years, he was, he was boss and name only, wasn't really doing anything. So yeah, I, I just, believe that Zerilli was actually yeah. the most active uh, godfather for the longest period of time. He was nationally respected, nationally beloved, nationally feared. Uh, he was that rare trifecta uh, of a gangster. Yeah, the perfect storm. I mean, it's you know, yeah. it's it's easy to get <laughs> that to get two of those three, but when you get all three, beloved, respected, and feared, um, you you become a powerhouse and, and can do a lot of uh, things at the highest levels of of the mob. Joe's really was was a no. You have if you only click on two, if you right. get the Vito Genovese, where you're just more. Completely fear, or you get the the Angelo Bruno, where to make, where you're just more loved, and then the but you don't get the whole triangle. Yeah, it does. Yeah, well, you usually end up Angelo getting Bruno, turned on. Uh, I agree. <laughs> at the end, I, I would not say that he was beloved in any way. Uh, I think at the bit, not at, no, not at the end, but to like first rise to power, he seemed like he he upset a lot of people. He upset <clears> a lot of people. I was saying that's what I was saying is he was he missing was, one of the triangles. You know, what I mean, yeah, but I'm saying I don't triangle. know how beloved he was. I would say that. He was definitely respected and feared. Um, I think Bruno's the whole docile Don routine didn't 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 sit well with with his uh, with his soldiers because. Yeah, I guess with a lot of the I guess what I mean by loved was uh, I didn't even necessarily mean about Skinny Joey's beloved. Um, yeah, that's true. Yeah, motherfuckers. Yeah, yeah I mean, they do crew. be loving Skinny. But it seems like a lot of people I talk but, to I mean, from that's Philly not, You know what, that's like, not even really fair like either. His crew be- he's beloved by his crew, but he's actually hated by a lot of people that aren't in his inner circle. Um, Merlino, who, who is that? you know, Merlino either or... love him or hate him. I mean, guys are either, you know, incredibly <laughs> yeah. loyal to him, you know, would take a bullet for him, would, you know, do a, would do 50 years in prison for him, or, you know, they want to kill him and, and uh, yep. they, 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 they root for his downfall. Um, but, yeah, Joe's the rally for Detroit, Jack yeah, Coco, you know. He ruled for thirty, uh, you know, also for or for almost forty years. Um, he was, I would say, he was respected and he was feared. Uh, was not beloved, but uh, was still able to right. to rule effectively. And uh, you know, with that one little blip on the radar of the of the ninety six gam tax bust, which really ended up only being a slap on the wrist for him. He only ended up, ended up having to do like eight, you know, I think it was like 18 months um, for some, for a case that, that most, uh, most mob figures would have done 20, 20 years plus. Um, and it's, that also speaks to yeah. the uh, level of reach and influence that the Detroit mob has or had uh, within the you know highest corridors of power. Um, in the government and law enforcement and, 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 you know, the judicial, the judicial branch of, of uh, law, law and order in Michigan. I mean, I'm not going to name names and you can, you can go back and do, uh, go look at who the, who the U S district court judge was on that case. But um, there's a lot of people that, um, that, that suspect that, that, you know, there were bribes given. That's how, uh, that's how Jack Toko got such a light sentence. <laughs> okay. I mean, that makes yeah. sense. I mean, this wouldn't be the first time in mob history. You know? The Jack Maloney's had a lot of power uh, um, in what? terms of money, and I don't think you can compare the Jack Maloney's to what the Tokos did or what the Maley's did, uh, but in terms of being a, a juggernaut in, in the underworld and Detroit from 1950 forward, uh, you know, I don't think any names – or reputations um, rang louder in the streets of Detroit than the Jackaloni brothers, uh, Anthony, Tony Jack, and, and his brother Vito, Billy Jack. They were uh, they were the faces of the franchise. Yeah, Tony Jack's probably yeah. the most posted. 
Detroit yeah, he is. And people you know, look at him honest. as like he was the boss. And he was the street boss, but he was never the the um he never had had never had the final final that, yeah. for the final shot caller. But yeah. Heavy didn't get to buy the crown. Yeah. He and you know what? It was a around. it really was a decision. And this I think this also speaks to the way the Detroit family operates. Um I think nine times out of ten in any other city, the aftermath of Joe Zerilli's passing in nineteen seventy seven, where the family was left to Tony Giacalone and Jack Toko, who were not uh, close friends, did not did not really res- like each no, other. No. <laughs> I think they there might have been a small modicum of respect, at least from Jack Toko to Tony Jack. But I don't think Tony Jack had a lot of respect for Jack Toko. But uh, I think I think nine times out of ten, if, if this had been any other city, uh, the Giacalone brothers would have moved on Jack Toko, and there would have been a gangland assassination and a, and a power and a power struggle. Uh, I'll see what you're saying. Like if we yeah. were in Chicago, I mean, it's, it's an, it's the, the situation it's, was almost identical yeah. to what happened in the Gambinos in in '85 with uh, Gotti and Castellano, with with Castellano. Gotti being Jackaloni and Castellano being um, Jack Toko. Sorry, with with uh, with Jackaloni being Gotti and Toko being Castellano. Um, you know. Jack Toko represented okay. the white collar right, uh, yep. wing of the family, and uh, the Jackalones represented the blue collar wing of the family. But they were able to coexist. Um, Billy Jackaloni was probably the main reason for that. He he ran interference between his brother and Toko, and um, was you know the consummate gangland politician. And him, Tony, and Billy would would uh, kind of play good cop, bad cop with people. Tony being the the bad cop, and Billy being the good cop. I, well, I can see that. That seems to be, a, I mean, almost like you need that approach. You can't just have two gung home up. I mean, you can. I mean, there's been examples, but it just doesn't. Well, that's why Bill, you know, we're talking play about the, out for uh, as long as a, the triumvirate of, of, uh, of mob leadership attributes. Um, Tony was, Tony Jacqueloni was, was feared without question, respected without question. Uh, I wouldn't say he was beloved. Billy Jacqueline, Billy Jacqueline, on the other hand, uh, <laughs> he checks all boxes. Billy was beloved, he was respected, and he was feared. Kind of like a Detroit like Cray who? Twins situation. <laughs> you ever hear oh, the Cray Twins? Yeah, yeah, the, uh, the, the Cray Brothers. Twins, yeah. Yeah, yeah the Cray Brothers, the twin brothers. The, 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 the roofs, but the one seemed like, like he did have the love of his people and was more than yeah. the other one was just fucking feared. <laughs> yep. That uh, that seems to happen a lot. Uh, so when I guess would prohibition be when Detroit was making their most money too? It seems like it's no. like the overall theme for organized crime. But other than prohibition, they, like when, like what era would you say they were bringing 50s, in some of the their biggest increments of? Like, I would 50s? say yeah, between the fifties and sixties, between uh, forty-eight and seventy-eight. Those thirty years, we're probably talking. Well, it's ironic that you say that because during this time period, a very, very prominent man whose uh, book and film I know I've disagreed with and I've seen your disputes about it online, fucking, that's around the time fucking we started to see old Jimmy Hoffa popping and out, right? Yeah. (laughs) He's the exact time he says, I'm glad you got that down. Now, I'm going to rant about the Irishman as well, but how did, I don't know, how did you feel about it? I, I don't know. I'm not. Uh, I, I mean, I should give it a shout out real quick, though. The Irishman by uh, Charles Brandt uh, is supposed to be the alleged. I say alleged very loosely because I don't buy it one bit. Uh, who killed who done Hoffa? Allegedly, you know, Frank, the Irishman, Sharon. Don't believe it once again. And uh, not don't not that I don't believe Frank Sharon was was a gangster in his own right in certain senses. But two things I'm positive on. He didn't whack Gallo. He didn't whack Hoffa. But I'm gonna let my uh, expert talk a little more into the Irishman and like what was uh, your my beef biggest the beef Irishman? was the disrespect that I viewed the film uh, taking towards Detroit uh, as a city, as a mob family, as being the um, everything begins, ends, rise, fall, life, death, rise to power, um, uh, disappearance, assassination kidnapping body it, it all you know detroit's ground zero and if you watch the irishman yeah <laughs> um, it, detroit gets incredibly marginalized you only really even know the name of the you know the, the only time that the, the, the word detroit is mentioned is when they're kind of flashing back to or back and forth 
between the trip that the De Niro and Pesci character are taking out to Detroit, where he says we're going up yeah. to Detroit on a map. When right? they're mapping out the map. But other than that, the only um, yep. Detroit mafia figure uh, that in the film depicted is Tony Jacaloni, and frankly, it's it's offense it's offensive the way it's a, it's very offensive it's the way they portrayed him. They, they portrayed him as a as a water boy for for Tony Provenzano as some type of clown. Um, I know the Jacaloni family was offended by the the way he was depicted. Um, it's the whole the whole premise uh, is 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 false. It's a uh, it's a fantasy. Frank yeah. Sheeran was yep. someone that was uh, a goon in the Teamsters Union. He was someone that ran a Teamsters local yep. in Delaware. He's someone that. Did some uh, muscle work on behalf of Russell Buffalino, the mob boss in in, in uh, rural Pennsylvania, Angelo Bruno, uh, the mob boss in Philadelphia, and uh, I believe he did he did he did some. What he did he did do some work for Bruno. Though. You he you he did do some work yeah, for he did Bruno. A little though, bit of like work for Bruno, and, he was, that that's and not... he was uh, Russell Buffalino's right hand man, and I he knew Jimmy Hoffa. Uh, I would yeah. dare to say they were friends. But um, there, by no means was Frank Sheeran someone that anybody needed, uh, let alone uh, tasked <laughs> with uh, pulling off the, the greatest <laughs> mob murder of all time, the perfect murder. The greatest thing. It, it could only be yeah, done by people that, that had yeah. PhDs in mob murder. And, and specifically, I'm talking about the Jackaloni brothers. <laughs> um, who, so you do? Do you believe that the? I, I mean, alleged. We'll say alleged to keep everybody's right. family no, name clean. But I have no problem saying that the Jacaroni <laughs> brothers were directly involved in in killing Jimmy Hoffa. And, yeah. He's like they were the trigger man. You know, no, Tony Jacaroni was in charge of coordinating the details, awesome. and organizing the hit. Billy Jacaroni was um, Tony's representative on the hit, and then I believe Tony Palazzolo, who was another uh, up and coming Detroit mob guy at the time, who recently died. Um, was also involved, yeah. and then yeah. uh, I believe there was. He was like disposal. Do you think Tony, think Tony Pro was dispo- like to the, the, the Tony the Pal? Tony Pal. Uh, I think he was driving the car that picked Hoffa up. The FBI now believes that he was the trigger man. I- I'm not convinced he was the trigger man. I believe he was okay. there. He was involved uh, in in the kidnapping, and I also believe okay. he was involved in the disposal. Um, but I don't. But there yeah. have been a number of people, including Palazzolo himself, caught on an FBI wire um, that that has um, that 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 point to to Palazzolo's role in the, in the uh, uh, kidnapping and disappearance. That's awesome. Are you writing a book? The no, who, like, who'd really done it? I've, like, most of my like... books uh, that are Detroit related uh, go into the Jimmy Hoffa thing. Um, you know, maybe when this thing is all okay. put to bed and there's a big. Uh, bow wrapped around it. I, I might think about writing something uh, about this. Even a short yeah. '90s page. I told so you. So I so just, you, uh, you know, like, you know, <laughs> Frank Sheeran. The one thing I'll give him credit for, uh, he, he perpetrated um, a tremendous con job from the grave. Uh, you know, he, he, you know, there's the short con, <laughs> and then there's the long con, and this guy mastered the art of the long con <laughs> to the point where he was conning, conning people. You know, 15 years after he he, he took his last breath. Um, and I know things that most people don't know. I have a, you know, my agent who I referenced earlier in this interview was also the agent for Charlie Brandt and Frank Sheeran. Um, the book was called I Heard You Paint Houses, okay. which was then turned into The Irishman. And yep. I, Yeah, the Irish, I just got the new copy. And I know book. that, I mean, that uh, Sheeran had, so. had shopped his life story on two separate occasions um, before he sold, I heard you paint houses. And I know that in the previous two um, pitches, he, he, ref- he didn't mention anything about involvement in, in Hoffa or Gallo. Uh, and then in the third pitch that went around that eventually got sold, he had uh, copped to, to being the trigger man in both those hits. Um, yeah. The Gallo one is just ridiculous because I, 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 I didn't have the names down. Like People you know that Sonny Pinto one, was the, the Gallo one. That, come uh, on, man. That's not Joe Gallo. 
so yes, yeah. it's just uh, you know if if you're looking at it as good Martin Scorsese style mafia fiction, I think that you can look at the movie and, and find value in it. But um, it's just you know the whole story is based on a giant lie and mistruth. That's where I. That's where I'm gonna come in on my film critic shit because uh, I do another movie. I do another movie uh, review podcast. Shout out Movie Buff Romance. My body, my uh, co-host Bob Farnsworth. Uh, that's a great time. I love it over there. We'll do this film soon. My fucking problem with this, and a quick rant about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is like, bro, it's directorial masturbation, man. I didn't I need four hours you, for both um, of those movies. I just pretty didn't. Uh, emphatically, and and the criticisms of of uh, both of those two films and. Like I love I was both those directors, and it just—I don't know what happened. Tarantino one was was even more self-indulgent, in my opinion, than the Scorsese one. Um, I, yes. I'm a huge Tarantino fan, yes, a huge absolutely. Scorsese fan, just like you. I was—I I expected going to see Once Upon a Time in Hollywood that I was going to walk out and that it was going to be automatically in my top two or two or three uh, Tarantino yep. movies of all time, yep. and. Frankly, I walked out of it, and it's probably my bottom. Yep, I agree. I was all like, "Well, uh, I guess I'll go watch." I thought they did a great job of of recapturing that era, and 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 you know the the attention to detail, time period, yes, the authenticity of the of that aura of that time period was was great, and some parts of the story I thought were really strong, but overall, like you said, it was just a lot of it was redundant and self-indulgent and yep well and i just like i also felt type, like yeah yeah i'm also a big manson aficionado and that's one of the, that's one of the things that actually <laughs> he wasn't about, there enough um where the early seeds of my interest in organized crime stem from it, it might actually be manson because even though people don't view manson as organized crime i, I actually kind of view manson as a hippie mob boss more than a uh, a cult guru i mean if you if you know what he was doing up in the spawn ranch, i can appreciate you, you realize that. that it those it, it was a lot more than just yeah. uh you know uh race wars and the world coming to an end and free love and free sex i mean he had various drug rackets and auto theft rackets and gambling rackets and yeah prostitution rackets yeah. and no they were criminals man Yep, they were some real criminals. What turned me on to true crime, and I'm writing a book about it, hoping it fucking gets published by 2024, yeah. was uh, the Columbine shootings. That's uh, like that's what like that's what flicked me into like yeah. organized crime and just people who tick differently. You know what I mean? Like people who aren't wired like you or I to where it's like we might take a couple deep breaths and be like, all right, it is what it is. Nope, there's people who's like as soon as they're crossed, you're dead. They don't know when. They don't so know I, how. I, it could I was be right hoping there, that you're gonna die. I was gonna get <laughs> kind of amusing. Uh, not amusing, but like not not to be. I'm not saying like amused, like to be uh, made to laugh. I mean, like I was expecting Tarantino's musings on Manson, and I think his musing on Manson at the end yes. of the day was a big fuck you to Manson, saying like, "Oh, you think you're so important? <laughs> well, I'm going to tell everyone I'm doing a, a a huge movie about you, and the joke's going to be on anyone that thinks they're going to turn this." movie on and see a, a story about Manson because I'm only going to feature you in in 10 seconds of the movie. Right. So I yeah, 10 I don't, seconds too. I, I'm was, kind of yeah, back and forth on whether I respect that or whether it drives me through the roof annoying because I really wanted to see not that, <laughs> not that the whole movie had to be Manson um, but I would have liked to see more of an interwoving of, of the Manson uh, family story into the uh, into the into the the core of the script. In the end, it really was just a vehicle to bring them to the the final act of the movie and and change history. Right. Yeah, no, yeah, and that he did that with Inglorious Bastards too. And I love Quentin Tarantino's universe yeah. that he makes. You got your Pulp Fiction, Reservoir Dogs, all that. Yeah, I don't I, like when he rewrites history. For some I could I could have forgiven it if I it thought do the rest me. of it was a little tighter. But, uh, you know, again, the performances yeah, right. were great. I thought DiCaprio was outstanding. Yeah. Oh, the scene where yeah. he's yelling at himself in the, the scene trailer. With the, the, like, you're a goddamn the, um, drunk child actor. Oh, man, I laughed. I... And uh, Brad Pitt, you know, he won. Yeah, yep, that was a really good scene. He, he won the Golden Globe. I don't remember if he won the Oscar. 
I I don't know. I, what wouldn't surprise me if yeah, he did right. because Jesus Christ, he's what fifty five and that body's still like uh, that. So Dude, yeah, like, I uh, <laughs> and then I'm just I'm I'm too deep into it. I'm too biased to really be able to review the Irishman. Um, Oh, no, you're not. I review. I give it a one out of five. I give it a one out of five because it's got Joe Pesci and he was my only favorite as Russell Buffalino. I did like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was old enough. He was playing a role role that he was very reserved as opposed to the Tony uh, Spilatro or the the Tommy D uh, in Casino and Goodfellas where he's like, uh, you know, unhinged. Yep. Yeah, that's my idea. Yeah, One of my favorite Carmine. cameos is his too. Is that he's in a Bronx Tale for fuck Bronx Tale? So Bronx Tale, yeah. so good. Yep. <clears throat> oh shit! Well, well, we're wrapping up on an hour here. We won't go too much longer, but I do got one more yeah, question man, for you, and then I'll hopefully get you on a couple more of these because I mean, I'd love, I'd love to have a couple partners with you. But uh, what do you? I mean, you, I mean, you don't seem like you give a fuck or care for boss people. But what do you? What do you see as the future for the Detroit? Uh, I don't. I what don't do, what do, do you so see them? <laughs> Ever. I, mean, I think that the that because of Detroit's <laughs> pedigree and history, they'll, uh, you know, I'd say for the next twenty years, they'll, they'll, they there will be some form of the Tokel's really crime family that's operational. Um, I just, I don't know where the rec- where does the recruiting base come from. Um, there are really no. There aren't a lot of right. young, up-and-coming Detroit mob guys. You know, the guys that are young are, you know, in their late 40s um, or, you know, in their 50s. <laughs> uh, the guys that are running the family right now are all in their 70s. Uh, you you right. just don't have a younger generation. You don't have in Detroit because it was always been a... Um, you know, it's, it's always been a, a family business in the sense that, you know, the Tocos, the, the Zerillis, the Corrados, the Licavolis, the Zerillis, Jackalonis. Um, yeah. They were the families that were leading leading uh, the Detroit mob in Prohibition, and they were the same families that are leading the mob today. Uh, but their right on. third generation, you know, the, the, the second generation in, in the Detroit mob uh, went into the into the family as we as we spoke about a lot of them got college educated and got into the family but yeah. the third and fourth generations yeah. are going the opposite direction and and the and the families that you would think would be keeping their bloodlines in the game i.e. the jackalonis are sending <laughs> their kids to medical school and tokos doing the, the jack tokos doing the same thing so right. they're just uh, I think things will be okay for the next 10, 15 years uh, because there'll still be guys that are around. But uh, attrition has already hit this family very hard. You know, the last decade has been very um, rough uh, attrition-wise, especially, let's say, the last five years uh, from 2000, let's say 2015, uh, 14, 15 to now. Uh, he probably had 15 button men die. Um, and you, for a family that was already small, Damn. So you're you're probably at around twenty, uh, twenty to twenty five made guys. Um, I haven't heard about any making ceremonies that have taken place under Jackie Jackaloni. That doesn't mean that they haven't. Uh, it's a, alleged that 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 Billy Jackaloni's son Jack, <laughs> yeah, uh, has taken over for Jack Toko and has been the boss from 2014 okay. to the present day. Um, there were room. I wish you. I wish you'd have been with us at the Italian festival yeah. a couple of years back. I was down there with a uh, shout Gunnar Lindblom, uh, a third of be a king and proprietor of our thing clothing line. Big shout out to him uh, and Ronnie Cockroach and Dave Randazzo, all the boys that are you know all intertwined in our thing, myself included. This podcast is a big supporter of them. But we was down there hustling gear, and I'm standing out front, more or less trying to hustle the mm-hmm. to be a king volumes. And then Larry Mazza's book, uh, The Life. Shout out Larry Mazza. I need to get that motherfucker on here soon. Um. But I liked it. It got to the point where later in the night, Vinnie Jack, Vinny, uh, Vinny Jack show. a handful of individuals, if you will, that were well, sitting. I, the, the, like, the time that you're talking about a couple of years ago, oh. uh, I know that uh, Vinny Jack showed up and talked to Al and, yep. and bought one of Alan's books and stuff. That's Vinny, Vinny is Billy's <laughs> other son and Jackie's <laughs> brother, who's 
alleged or a reputed. Uh... It, it was so cool because yeah. they're kind of they were kind of doing like a surveillance bit on us almost. You know what I mean? And like they were like they'd be like laughing, half laughing at me because I began all hype about. This he's shit. a he's like, a younger guy. I don't I'm think like, Vinny's I've never been in the loud. I'm not. He's not sixty yet. Yeah. If he is, he just hit sixty. I think he's in his late fifties. Bill. No, he wasn't. Bad. Like, he had a nice tan going. He was dressed to the nines, like not not like a suit. There's nine, really only had, like, one. Nice khakis going. It was a summer uh, day. You know, you know how it is. You know, one guy that I would say is in his early forties that I know about that's kind of has aspirations of being a, a Detroit mob leader. He was Jackie's driver for a short period of time um, when he became the boss. So we'll see what happens with him. His name is. Peter Toko, they call him Gotti. There's like four Peter Tokos involved, and uh, <laughs> it's, it's confusing. There's Peter Specs Toko, who's the alleged uh, consigliere or uh, street boss. There's his son, Little Pete Toko, who's really not involved in anything, but he took a bookmaking bust um, 15 years ago. And then there's um, yeah. There's just there's just a lot of different Pete Tokos to keep straight. So, but the one I'm talking about, they call Gotti. Because he's kind of obsessed and, with John Gotti back in the like, day. That's awesome. Yeah, and I think he's my. That's, I think he's my that's age. hilarious. I, think, I, think I do love it. I mean, I love, love him or hate him. To man, a girl out in Farmington Hills, um, a Jewish girl in Farmington Hills. Yeah. So he, yeah. Well, he, he was a so real influence by that Gotti era. Then, like yeah. 14, 15, 16, 17. Um, but I heard the last couple of years he hasn't been driving for Jack anymore. But as as anybody knows, or as anybody who follows oh, this world well, should know, I mean, um, you know the 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 stepping stone to being a a boss or a, or a shot caller in the mob is beginning as a driver or a bodyguard or an emissary for a boss or shot caller. Yeah, yeah. It seems I'll like a driver's a big one. Like a lot of the big names I read about seem to start as drivers. Yeah. I feel I feel like it's because you ride around with a high echelon member who probably just sort of right. yakking in your ear. Like you, I rode around with. Carpenters, roofers, every mm-hmm. job I've ever had, like they chat your ear off about the job, about the life. But so, know? I mean, I don't. So, I would just say that I think like the driver will be stable for the next decade to decade and a half. But when we're getting into, you know, twenty years from now, I, it, it, some of it will de- depend on what happens from here. But I don't see things increasing. If anything, they're going to decrease. Uh, so I don't know. I, I think that. This is, this is my closing shot. People ask me this, my, my party shot. People ask me all the time, like, you know, what, what's the future of the mob? And I, I, and I, I don't know exactly what form the mafia in America will look like, whether it be 10 years from now, 20 years from now, 50 years from now, 100 years from now. But what I do know is that there will always be some, uh, some type of organization that operates Organized. and preys on what I call the three pillars uh, of organized crime, uh, you know, gambling, uh, loan sharking, drugs and extortion. That's actually gambling. Cool. But uh, uh, you know, there are all there are all there will always be I count drugs a market and extortion that, is one. Uh, right. for people that want to gamble. There will always be a market where there are weaker people for for stronger uh, mob types to to muscle in on and and extort. Um, and then there will always be you know people that yep. can't go to a bank for a loan that, that need to go to the street for a loan. So as long as those, yep. and then there will always yep. be people that want to use drugs. So as long as and those, will forever be those three or four things exist, yeah, I was gonna say, um, there's always going to be some semblance uh, of organized crime, in my opinion. Now, again, what, what form that takes in the future, I'm not sure. I just don't think the mob will ever be extinct because of, because of those, those vices that just are universal. Yeah. No, I wholeheartedly agree, man. Well, I really appreciate you doing this for me, Scott. You've been one of the people I've yeah, wanted on know, here dude, I can always come on and uh, we can always talk about man, so I do appreciate talking about this stuff. So. Uh, yeah. My next goal for us was we'll tackle, because like I said, man, I'm doing like a Gonzo podcast thing. Like I want the people to get to know you. Yeah. And then I couldn't help but ask about Phil Lee. And that, you know, I have a hard time staying on top. It's that ADD. What are you going to do? But uh, next time I'd like to tackle, we can tackle more in on like uh more and more on what got you into writing. We can tackle more into like the sort of the eras of the family. We didn't tackle like how well they did during prohibition and stuff like that. But what I, 
Yeah, yeah, more no more to Philly. I'm down for too. But the one I, I do want to get you on for, even if we do a whole episode just about them, because I know you yeah, know a shit okay. ton. Yeah, no and they've always fascinated me. The best friends gang. I that I don't know. It's just one of my kryptonites, man. Yeah, I'm just like they're so more. good. They caught what, like hundred bodies in five years. That's insane. Uh, like, <laughs> week, Rock and Reg had his uh, people reach out to me and maybe wants to do an interview with me. So we'll see. Yeah. That'd be fucking amazing. No, God, I know Boone well. Yeah, I'm the, one who, to Boone, I'm the one who, do, who, who I'm the one who introduced Prophet to Boone. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, my fault, my fault. Oh man, that's incredible. His story. Yeah, Whew, that's one of the ones uh, that gets. I'll, I'm actually gonna go watch it right now. To be real, like notorious contract hitman. Uh, you know, in Detroit in the uh, in the 80s, <laughs> and early 90s. Um, you know, the only person that I, I think that that uh, meets his level of infamy and reputation for for uh, just straight out <laughs> butchery when it comes to when when it comes to killing people on the street would be yeah, cold blood in my head. Cold the, uh, back in the sixties and seventies, who was a big contract uh, mob hitter uh, for both the black mob and the Italian mob. Going around the going around the country doing hits, but Boone was was uh, yeah. kind of strictly in Detroit. But uh, he was the guy you went to on the street back in the eighties if you needed if you needed someone taken care of and someone's head blown off. Uh, Boone, <laughs> Boone was up, the... Oh man, what would it take? For, what would it take to get him on one of these? Or would he never? Is he really? You want to throw him a couple hundred bucks? I bet he'd do it. <laughs> yep. All right. Yeah. Yeah, no, he'd definitely be worth it, man. Most definitely. I'm, I'm gonna make sure that I get you for the episode too. I yeah, know dude, you I got you, man. No, no you said I didn't Let have me know. to, but I appreciate you on. coming on. So, yeah, no problem, man. Fucking thanks for having me on, Scott. Scott and Bernstein, everybody. Mafia uh, check Prince, out his books, Detroit City Mafia, Crime Chronicles, uh, Family we got, Affair, we got the Mob Press, the what list, else and White Boy Rick and the Detroit. Uh, I think it's called White Boy Rick and the Crazy Detroit 1980s or something like that. I'm not sure what the subtitle. I should probably know the subtitles of my own uh, books. Hell yeah, I'm gonna say me. Five. Yeah. <laughs> no, fuck that. That's your that's your publisher's yeah. job. Hell yeah, I'm gonna have to save me up five bands and be like, White Boy Rick, what are you doing? I know you need money. Uh, but all right, Scott, thanks for coming on. From all of us here at Wise Guys Hideaway, have a have a thanks, wonderful dog. rest of your be weekend, good, and uh, I'll be talk good. to you, Scott.